our supply chain system was in no way as robust as it needed to be. It was almost like a huge company built on sand because it was good enough for a seven million pound business, but certainly not big enough for a very quick, fast growing business. So trying to fix those things at the same time, trying to change culture, the way we do things as well as kind of trying to keep things the same as well in terms of quality and things. It was, it was really quite tough. That's Vivian Wong, the co-founder and CEO of Little Moons. Little Moons makes mochi ice cream, a type of Japanese rice cake with an ice cream filling. Now, having grown steadily and surely for a decade, Little Moons sales suddenly rocketed in the pandemic when the company went viral on TikTok. But after being hit by supply chain woes and Brexit, they had hardly any stock left to meet the demand. They managed it, though. And as you just heard, their revenue went from seven to £27 million in just two years. So how did they do it? And at what personal cost? Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we're here to find out about the person behind the brand. Vivian co-founded Little Moons with her brother Howard in 2010 after developing the product in her parents' bakery. It wasn't just growing up around cakes and treats that inspired her. My uh, mum started her own business um, making cakes and biscuits, um, traditional ones from Malaysia, because when she moved over here from Malaysia, there there wasn't anything like that back in the 70s. Um, And she really missed it. And my dad missed these sweet treats that you used to get back home, as they would say. Um, And that's how she started the business. And as it grew, my dad left his business um, as an engineer with BT and joined, joined her in that business. And I think I learned so much from having a working mum, just how she managed her time, watching how she problem solved. And it did mean that I had to be a lot more responsible for me and my little brother because she didn't naturally have as much time as a a stay at home mum. But I wouldn't, I don't know, I wouldn't wouldn't put that as a bad thing because I feel like I've gained so much from being more responsible and and having to grow up a little bit quicker. Um, And I guess it also gave me a playground at weekends and school holidays of, of really learning and seeing what it's like to work for real, not an internship, but definitely in the business, learning how to be accountable for certain responsibilities that she'd given me. Um, so that was, it was a really good learning experience to, to have that in the background. Mm, I can really relate, you know, in a very parallel, parallel lives. My, my dad ran a, a you know, a then family business, um, which I really didn't want to go into um, and didn't. As there's no there's no cliffhanger here. Um, but growing up, I always did the stuff. So it was in fashion manufacturing and I used to go to the warehouse and I was, um, you know, I learned to drive a forklift truck at 16 and I, I could drive one of those before I, could, I had a driving license. Um, and, you know, you just learn like, you know, how to do the real hard graft stuff. And I was actually, you know, it's funny because I'm saying this on a podcast, but he's passed away now anyway, so no one can sue him. But I was working from the age of 13 and... I think that was just amazing. I always look back to the fact that every summer I was working and I loved it. And I think it's really helped me have a great attitude towards work. I just really enjoy and appreciate all sorts of work, hard work, like manual labor work. For me, there's some joy to be found in all of it. But I think that's part of because you understand the sort of process end to end. And I feel like getting that sort of behind the scenes access of what really goes on inside a business is super helpful. Yeah. Completely. And I think what you learn just working in a family business is very different than when you branch out and you get a job for someone else and you're no longer the boss's daughter or son. Um, And 
I guess how you have to work that little bit harder and people aren't as forgiving because you're not the boss's kid. Um, and I guess just as a combination of both of those things, you know, I, I, I worked for people whom I learned how not to manage, um, but I also learned really good systems and how a really professional company is run. And I guess I brought all of that together from a family business and, you know, professional background into our business. And the same for my brother. He also went out and got a job uh, in a corporation. And so we, we brought all of those skills together when we started Little Means. Okay, so obviously Asian stereotype, you know, parents that make their kids work effing hard. Yeah. Um, relatable? Absolutely. Um, you know, an A was never good enough. Why wasn't an A star? 98%. Why wasn't it 100? Really, really pushed academically and just generally just to be really well behaved kids. I think I recently um, listened to a podcast and I can't quote the name of the lady, but I think everyone is about a growth mindset. And I think that was definitely me because I wasn't, academics didn't come easily to me. Was the lady Carol Dweck by any chance? I think that was the one. Yes. Very, very good on growth mindset. Yeah. So my mum always told me that I had to work harder and try harder. And that just sort of set me on a on a path whereby I always had to try harder to do better. And I think it's it's held me in good stead, um, particularly as an entrepreneur, because you're always striving to do something better um, and work harder and push yourself harder. OK, so talk to me about the early part of your career then. Like you you basically graduated, I assume, um, from school. And Did you go to university? Yeah, I went to university. I went to Reading and studied business economics. Um, and straight out of uni, of course. <laughs> I um, trained as a chartered accountant, as expected. My parents were very keen for us to go into a profession to learn a skill. Um, and that's what I did. Um, and then after I qualified, I went to work for Barclays Capital in the city. And I was there for four years until I was 28. Um, and that's when I made the decision to leave. And it was a, you know, it was a difficult time. Like I think Lehman Brothers had just fallen, Bear Stearns had just fallen. The economy was obviously going to be on a downturn. So really not the best time to start a business. But as it turned out, it was quite fortuitous because it gave us time to really develop the, the company and develop our ideas. So a couple of questions that spring to mind here. Um, but sort of jumping back for a second on the idea of, you know, you've, you've gone to university, you've done the thing that was, you know, strongly suggested to you would be a good idea to study. And then following university, you do further education, you know, an ACA, more time and, and effort and energy spent picking up a skill um, that you don't perhaps want, but you understand the greater good of the choice and why your parents push you to do it. Can you reflect on how you felt about these choices? And I'm asking you on behalf of, I suppose, every single child of every single parent who is ultimately right in the end, but effing annoying at the time. Did you feel irritated to be doing them? Did you completely buy into your parents' plan that this stuff is the best for you? Can, can you remember sort of like how it felt to be doing the stuff you're told to do? Absolutely. But I was brought up not to question it. And that was my journey. And I just followed it um, like the perfect daughter I really wanted to be. And I guess it was, um, <clears throat> it didn't get, I think when I, it's roughly the same time I started my business, like 28, 29, I think something in my own personal life, a breakdown of a marriage really made me reassess what my life was like and what my values were, who I really was, not who my parents wanted me to be, what society expected of me. And just really from that point, I just had to rebase, do I, do I enjoy what I'm doing? Am I happy with this path that I can see before me? Um, my, my father was also diagnosed with cancer around that time. And it really brought everything together 
brought everything to a head and I had to really sit down and reassess my life. Um, and I think that was when I kind of had the courage to think, well, I've followed everyone's advice. I've, I've, I've done the best that I possibly can and I'm still not happy and I don't feel fulfilled. What's wrong with me? What can I do to fix this? How can I change? And I think just having the courage to do that. But my parents understood. Absolutely. They were super supportive. But I guess I, your parents give you these expectations because they think that's what's best for you. Of course, it is for you to find someone to get married, so you have stability, for you to have a career that's not a, a dead end career. There's a future in it. There's a skill to it. You'll hopefully never be out of work because people always need accountants. It's not bad advice. But did it make me happy? No. And I think recognizing that and having the courage to admit that to yourself and to make the change is definitely rewarding for me. It's, it's definitely worked out for the best. I'm, I'm much happier on my career path and in my life now. And just in terms of your, your dad, did he, sorry, do you mind my ask, did he pass away? He did. He, he um, passed away in 2018. He went into remission for 10 years and then his cancer came back. Um, so yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> and have you been able to, I mean, in some ways, obviously in a poetic kind of way, I suppose, you know, it's amazing for him to see the journey that you actually went on, um, sparked by his initial diagnosis. No one wants that, right? But of course, there are these moments, and I can only presume as a father, at some point you start to live vicariously for your children's happiness anyway. And so he must have been very thrilled actually to see the outcome of this journey that you were going through. Definitely. Um and I guess, um, you know, when you're talking to my dad, when he tells us about his life, um, he definitely followed his heart, leaving Malaysia to come to the UK to go to university and starting a life here. And that was already exciting. And I guess he really wanted that for us as well. So that's what we did. We sort of, I don't know, just, oh, there's an airplane. Should I stop? Can you hear it? Oh, yeah, just yeah, pause for a second. Yeah. I'll start again. OK, I'll start again about my dad because I was about to cry, start crying in the last one. And I just, okay, no, I'm just not going to cry. I cried in the last podcast and I promise I'd never <laughs> do it again. Um, no, I, I think my dad would have been, my dad, it was lovely for my dad to see us work, to work together because my, my dad and I worked on the recipe for Little Moons um, for two years before we actually launched the product. And that's because he'd been making mochi for 30 years and he was the absolute master of mochi. Um, he really taught us about the craft of, of making it and making sure that you followed the recipe and the procedures and, you know, and smelling it and making sure it was cooked and just not even just looking at it, but like how it feels. So that was really nice that I got to work with my dad for two years. And actually I saw him every day because he was always in the factory helping us. Um, so it was really it was magic, really, to spend those couple of years with my dad um, working so closely with him before he died. That is amazing. It's an unusual turn in a story, isn't it? Because... I guess not to get too philosophical about it all, but, you know, I would think about my own um, parents scenario. My father, when he was um, sick, he passed away over 10 years ago and it was only a small period that um, he was in between, but six months. But even in that period, the six months, you have a lot of space to, it's not sudden, I guess is my point. And you have space to reflect and understand the fragility of life and even though it's kind of drawn out and painful and, and still very difficult in the end, it's actually an amazing thing to not just have to go through the sudden loss of someone. Yeah. You know, I think about your story. Um, it's got such a, a meaningful, meaningful twist to it, doesn't it? That he, 
was such an integral part to why you started and you actually got to spend time with him building it. It must be very special to you. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I learned so much from him also that we all, <clears throat> sorry, we all end up dying. And I think the way that you live your life when you really accept that um, is really important because I don't think many people talk about it. And I'm quite, I'm quite open about talking about it. I've seen my, you know, I saw my dad, I was with him when he died. Mm, I was too. You know, see, see a dead body almost. It just really brings things home. Like that's where we're all going to end up at some point. So really <laughs> make the most of it. Because I think a lot of people don't even think about it and they're almost in denial. And then sometimes, you, you know, you read, the, you read the paper and certain famous people have died at like 50, in their 50s. That's me in like 10 years. <laughs> so, or not even less, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it, it just all these, all these moments make you take stock of life, how precious it is. I totally agree. I think it's, you know, there's often in these stories when I'm interviewing people, you know, there are these catalysts, there are these moments. Um, and, you know, there's just something interesting about human psychology, you know, talked about growth mindset, but it's also about um, being conscious and being in a place in your life where the stars align or the open, the closed, the previously closed mind is now open to something that was kind of glaring in their face the whole entire time. Um, and for a lot of people, that's just, and myself for sure as well, that's just saying, you know what, um, I actually have a lot and I'm unhappy. That doesn't seem, that doesn't seem like the right thing. Like if I, I'm earning a good salary and I have the job that loads of other people want and I'm living in one of the wealthiest cities in the world and, and I'm not happy, most people just ignore that feeling and just say, well, maybe that's just modern life. And um, a lot of my guests, myself, you for sure, have like you mentioned earlier the courage and I think there is that is kind of the right word as cringy as it feels but it's the courage to just listen to yourself if you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point it's not the sexiest acronym but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch like how you handle customer data the same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. 
Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Leaving Barclays, how did it feel to be leaving a job? Because, you know, some of our listeners are people who are um, considering it. And actually, you talk about 2008. Well, you know, listen to when we're recording. I would say that it could quite possibly be on a similar precipice. For all we know, certainly words like recession, upcoming, being floated around a lot. It's going to be a difficult time in the markets one way or another for the next couple of years. And especially, I think, employment markets, which, again, there's a lot of the same ingredients, whether it's as bad, let's hope not, but there's a lot of the same ingredients as when you chose to leave your job. So this is very relevant timing. Talk to us about the emotions, the mindset, the thoughts that went into a decision like that. So when I, I just thought, well, if I was, I, what are the things that I want to achieve before I die? And one of them was to get a dog, which just sounds quite sort of, which is similar now because everyone's got a dog, but you just have to slowly tick off everything that you want to do. Start your own business, all of this, have more time, be a captain of your own ship, all of this stuff, get a dog. Um, so I started doing things like that. But I think with, with great freedom, which is exactly what I suddenly found myself, like I don't have to turn up to work at nine. No one can tell me what to do. Um, you actually do need to set yourself some boundaries and to give yourself some, you know, a timetable and some routine, which I think everyone's had to do during 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 COVID and lockdown. And I've just realised how important that was. Otherwise, you don't really get anything done. Um, I guess just learning to do everything now. I was used to having, you know, an IT department. So if my laptop didn't work, I just phone them up and suddenly you're head of IT. If anything goes wrong, it's down to you to fix. You know, you're solving a thousand problems a day, not just about product development, just everything. The toilet's blocked, you've got to do it. Like every single thing comes down to you. And I think a lot of people struggle with that because you can't quite focus on this one thing you want to do. There's so much other stuff. And we didn't have investment. So we grew the business slowly ourselves. And so we just had to learn everything ourselves like how do you find a distributor how do you talk to distributors how do you negotiate margins I, I went to see a distributor and they said you've just started your business you're not going to be around in six months so why would I bother taking you on as client and why would restaurants bother putting you on a menu because they'll just have to reprint them again how how do you overcome that how do you convince someone to, to take you on it was just lots of learning um and it was it was difficult times but you know you have to be resilient and just find a way around it problem solving, like I said, a thousand problems a day. And if you're not good at that, um, it'll be difficult. Talk to me about the first couple of years then. You left in 2008, everything's crashed around you. And you, what? You say to your dad, you want to learn about uh, making mochi. You speak to your brother, you're in your mum's bakery. Set the scene for us properly. So I left in 2008. And like I said, I spent two years developing the, the recipe with my dad. So we came into the factory every day working on, you know, shelf life testing. You can't test it every day. You've got to give it certain amounts of shelf life, four months, you know, like six months, taste it, not right, got to start again, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Um, and then I guess we didn't quite... And, and what factory was this, sorry? This is my parents' bakery. So they gave us... Um, like a little corner in the in, in the in the corner of their bakery, and they made traditional mochi. So traditional mochi is um, you know mochi filled with red bean, and so it was a very unusual texture on the outside, and then something quite unusual inside because it's red bean. It, but I think how we wanted to innovate the product was yes, the outside is slightly unusual, but everyone loves ice cream. So once you get to the middle. Um, hopefully you would have loved it. And we thought that the dough really added to the, the flavor and the texture and the whole experience of eating it. Um, and then I think in 2010, we're ready to launch a product, um, started doing trade shows, 
learn how to do that and how to set like who 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 helps you set up a trade show stand like these are the small things that you just you just don't know how to do um if you've not been in the industry um so we did that and i met the head chef of zuma um nobu yosushi itsu um and that's where we sort of started trying to grow the business through restaurants and then i think my brother left jp at that point um sorry jp morgan um and decided to to join the business because we always wanted to do it together and it just looked like it was a a viable business potentially enough for the two of us maybe not not no way on our um, usual salaries but um it was just exciting for us to do it together and then we moved in together to save money and we just started building the, the business together then um we didn't split the roles up which we should have um once we did we got on a lot better but i guess it was just really scrappy everything was scrappy you just you were just floundering around just trying to solve issues in a way in the best way that you can without necessarily a template or any you know previous experience and so it was very scrappy and so when i say you know you've got to have a growth mindset that that set of skills to be scrappy some people don't have them but then you have to grow out of those skills as your business grows but so you know being scrappy now isn't going to help grow the business to where to to the next like to the next level so very scrappy couple of years but it was great for learning and we were really lucky that um, I guess no one else was coming into the mochi market because it was such a small market and we didn't have any competition. So we were able to sort of, you know, practice our, our skills, our, like how to run the business, how to scale um, production without a lot of um, pressure as such with competition coming in. And I was really grateful for that. And so I think that was where we were honing our, our skills on how to do things for the first couple of years. And I think it wasn't until 2015 when we started selling to retail in Whole Foods that I feel like we were a proper business because at that point we then got a Ned, a non-executive director to come and work with Howard and I. And he suggested we do a personality test. So we learn how to work better together. He, he sort of suggested that we split roles. So there's real lines of accountability and responsibility. So Howard started doing mar um, sales and marketing and I did operations and finance. And then, you know, we really had a bit more, you know, started doing proper management accounts whereby we'd have to sit down and, and, and discuss them. And that's where I think we started really growing as a business, not only just business wise, turnover wise, but I mean, you know, as a um, as an organization. And then from then on, I think 2018, we brought on a senior leadership team. Yeah. So that's kind of been the journey. Fast forward. So the first couple of years working with your brother, moving in together you know, quite risky as well, no matter how close you are, very different once you're suddenly working together. And you mentioned that you, you know, you're both scrappy, you're both doing lots of things, but ultimately um, learning where your skills are and learning where the overlaps are. Um, were there any like really uncomfortable conversations with your brother, like about, um, you know, stepping on each other's toes or one of you actually thinking that you were much better at the thing that you thought you were great at until your sibling tells you you're, you're really not? Like were any of those sort of, um, self-awareness moments or uh, moments of tension or did things just very naturally flow? I think there are definitely moments of tension. I don't think that we had a conversation about you're not as good as you think you are about certain things. I think when things slip through the net, whose fault is it? Like there were lots of like tensiony conversations like that, but then we didn't have split the role. So it was really difficult. You're kind of like, 
well, I thought you were going to do it. No, I thought you were going to do it. Why would I do it? Mm. Uh, those sort of things. Um, and then I guess there were tension moments when we're sat in the office and I'm, say, doing supplier payments because I'm an ACA. So I obviously naturally would do the accounts. And he would ask me a, sort of a big picture, blue sky thinking question and expect me to drop everything and, and answer it. And I couldn't do it. And so... <clears throat> It was a stress for me and it was a stress for him that he didn't have anyone to bounce his ideas off and I just needed to pay the suppliers, otherwise we wouldn't get any supplies. Um, and once we did the, did the colours personality test, it genuinely said in there, Vivian needs space to think about big blue sky thinking um, you know, issues, send her an, a calendar invite, tell her these are the issues you want to discuss so she can go away and think about it, then she'll come back and discuss it with you. Because I, I genuinely can't just suddenly start talking about ideas like that, whereas Howard is very good at that. And so it was just learning how to work together. And I guess it's not just siblings. I think any business partner or any person you go into business with or anyone on your team, it's really, it's really important to understand how they think and how they work. So that was a big lesson. And I guess the added complication with a sibling is you bring in all the sort of family sibling dynamic, which is not helpful at all at work. So, um, you know, we really had to learn how to dial that down, particularly when we brought on um, a senior leadership team. And talk to me a little bit about um, scaling Little Moons. So can you take us through um, the journey in a sort of linear way? So we understand the first two years. We understand, I guess, the end, which is you're fucking everywhere and <laughs> you're the best. So what happens What happens in between? Because you also mentioned, I think, you know, you didn't really take off until about 2017, 2018. So this is a long, long, long time in sort of the wilderness. So talk to us a little bit about how you grow a business like this from scratch. So for the first five years, um, we only sold to restaurants. So we sold to restaurants in the UK and all across Europe and the Middle East. And so that's just slowly scaling because it's... Uh, you know, the food service is a bit easier. It's white label. You just produce the product and send it, ship it out. So we learned how to manage the supply chain from that point of view. Relatively, um, you know, slow growth, I guess, over the first five years, we probably grew to about four million um, turnover just doing food service. Um, and then uh, in 2015, we launched into retail, different supply chain, packaging, social media, having to deal with consumers, all of that side of, of, of owning a brand um, rather than just a, a food service brand. Um, so that was a slow learning curve. And it was nice because Whole Foods was great for us, incredibly supportive. We learned how to activate, I don't know, trade marketing. And then we launched into Ocado, again, learning curve, how they operate, how you have to send out um, bigger batches of goods. And then we got into Waitrose again, slow learning curve. Um, than Tesco's. So it was just, it was quite a stepped controlled growth. So I guess that's kind of how we managed it. And then behind the scenes in terms of scaling operations, because we've always manufactured our own goods. We never had a contract manufacturer. Um, we just replicated one machine. You got another machine, you, but you increased your team. Then you've got like a number of machines. Then you actually need, um, an ops manager, or then you need shift managers because you're running more than one shift. And it was just, it was just a really nice, organic, gentle canter through a business growth. Um, particularly once we brought, brought on our non-executive director, it was really helpful to have some outside um, schooling and ideas um, to sort of guide us through that growth. We'd also grown through the factory. So we did, we did start off in, in our parents' bakery. And then um, my parents invested in a larger bakery that could then house Little Moons on one floor and their bakery on another floor. 
Um, and so our business ran out of their building, but we had our own dedicated space now. Um, and then we were there until, I want to say, the end of 2018. And then we built a larger factory um, and that we moved into our bigger factory, which was probably six times the size of our um, the old place that we're working out of just as COVID hit. Obviously, every business owner's experience during COVID very different, very stressful, very uncertain. Um, you know, at Heights, our um, our experience was, you know, we launched in January the 6th, 2020. Uh, so we had all these uh, ideas about, you know, we had an office in Soho and all of this stuff that no one ever ended up coming into, but we obviously had to pay through the nose for it for the first nine months whilst not really knowing if we're going to have a business. Um, and you know, survived out the other side, like a lot of people, the resilience, the grit, the learning new skills, now running a remote team still, uh, fully remote, never was the plan, but it's what happened. And so you're learning a new way of doing things. And that's also part of the fun and the chaos. Um, but uh, you guys have a, I mean, what will probably go down in some kind of startup folklore history, right? Because you were one of those uh, breakout brands, the the pandemic and just the way that people were living their lives at the time um, actually turned out to be massively in your favour. So tell us a little bit about that. It was such a roller coaster ride. Like I just mentioned, we our rent had just increased so much, moving into a much bigger factory. And then two months later, we had to shut it down. Um, and I think when you're manufacturing, you just, we, we just, we had so little information. I didn't, we didn't know back then that if you wore a mask and you washed your hands, it was controllable. You know, when we shut it down, it was almost like it could have been something like Ebola. You know, it's just you just don't know how it's being transmitted. So we just shut the factory down. We made that decision to do so before the government told told us to. Um, we just said, look, let, let's just do it. Let's just keep everyone safe. Um, and then as we learned more about it, we um, we did bring people back because although we had some stock left, it was it was going it was draining quite quickly because um, we we'd gone viral on TikTok um, in Germany. So Germany took all of our stock um, and then Brexit hit that December. So it would really, people were really pulling on our, on our, on our, um, you know, our stocks and stuff. So we had to bring people back into work. Um, and COVID was difficult. So our sales and marketing team could work from home because they were able to, and they worked brilliantly at home. I mean, you think you worry about your team actually doing any work when that you're, they're not visible. I didn't feel that at all from my team. If I called them, they'd pick up. Um, anytime you needed them, they were there. They were definitely getting work done. Um, but then the operations team was more difficult because we make everything by hand with a bit of machinery, but people have to stand quite close together to sort of dust the mochi, to put it into packaging, all of that sort of stuff. So we had to rearrange the factory. We had to get conveyor belts in. We had to get loads of PPE in, which was a lot more expensive. Um, hits your margin. And then everything was running out. So we couldn't get cardboard um, what else went wrong? You know, there were no, no containers for us to, to bring any rice flour in from Thailand. Just anything that could go wrong could go wrong. Um, and it just, um, I guess that put a lot of pressure on the business. And then in January, 2021, we went viral on TikTok, um, in the UK. And that's when we started off on a, on a really low baseline from stock. Cause we, we basically sent everything over to Europe because we didn't know at the deadline on 31st of December how we were going to export things over. So we just thought, you know what, let's just ship everything over there so we can we can supply it from from main from mainland Europe. Um, and so that 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 then 
brought on its own sort of challenges. Then we brought on someone from HR because our sales manager, you know, our head of sales was writing out all the furlough requests and things like that. And every, like I said, it, we were still quite scrappy at that point. Everyone was just helping it, helping to do whatever they could to, to get us through this, this period of uncertainty. How many people did you have and what kind of revenue before the pandemic versus after, just so we get a sense of the growth that you've gone through over the last couple of years? I feel like it was about 7 million before the pandemic. And then that year we grew to 10. And then as TikTok hit, we grew to about 27. So quite, quite a lot, quite quickly. Yeah, quite a lot. Um, And so at 27 million now, like how you know, how, how do you service that kind of supply when you're making something that that's kind of the bit with all these uncertainties, like, how did you manage to do it? Um, I mean, it, I feel like it was at great personal cost, because honestly, I just didn't, I feel like I didn't sleep for two years. I just, I'm just dying of anxiety, constant chronic anxiety from, you know, from, from every aspect. Um, and I guess it's your team. That's what it comes down to, the people in your business. So we had to bring on interims to who, who, who had a lot more experience than we could afford to employ full time to help um, shore up our supply chain, for example. Then operations, like how do you scale up an operation like that overnight? Um, you know, my current team didn't have the skills to do so. So we brought in an interim to, to, to help us. He usually helps turn around companies who are failing. But it's, I guess, similar emergency this is what we need to do to fix it type mentality. And so um, he came in and, and helped us upscale um, our team, put in different um, shifts, shift patterns, because we couldn't buy any more machines because no one was working. League time for machines was year, was like, you know, a year rather than months. Um, so we just had to bring in as much staff as we could working on different shifts, longer shifts. Um, and it was just, you know, I felt, I felt like, not a failure, but then having gone through it and, and spoken to a lot of suppliers, people in the business, you know, they've said, well, Unilever couldn't have kept up with that sort of growth. And I'm like, really? That's that's great to hear because I would have thought some, you know, I, I thought it was my failing that we couldn't keep up with that level of growth. Um, but it was really nice to know that actually um, even big established businesses would have struggled with that, with that level of growth and demand and, and meeting it because, you know, um, Tesco's, everyone who was calling us, you, you can't get enough. People were writing to us saying you're withholding stock on purpose. You're trying to, you're just trying to make it scarce. And we were like, we, we really aren't. Like we're trying to make as much as we possibly can. Um, and so there was just a lot of pressure, just a lot of pressure from every single part. Like it just felt like the house was on fire every single day you turned up to work. It was an incredibly stressful time of year, well, time whole year for us. And, and the hard as well when your product is, um, you know, so tasty, so high quality, but you can't have a bad batch. So, you know, this is a difficult thing, right? Which is um, you're not scaling up. I don't know what kind of analogy I have in my head. But it's not like Lego pieces, right? Something people ingest, has to taste amazing, has to be safe. Yeah, it's a whole load of things. You can't really have a single bad box. So, you know, the ability to scale up quickly and manage supply and actually not have um any major problems like that is pretty impressive yeah i mean that was definitely something that we we're mindful of like little moons is all about quality so we couldn't just scale up and 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 have our quality fall um 
so yeah, that, I guess that did add to the pressure and also the teams as well. There's only a few people that really knew how to make it. We're bringing on so many new people. I think we probably had 100 people before the pandemic. And then at the end, we had about 400 people working in production. And how do you onboard that many people that quickly and keep the culture? I mean, that definitely slipped. We just didn't have time to do it. And then what it really highlighted um, was our processes. So we had the processes of a, a seven million pound business trying to run like, you know, 27 plus now and bringing that many new people along the journey with you because they they haven't, you know, they don't necessarily know what Little Moons is about. They haven't been on the journey with us for, you know, 10 years or so, which a lot of the other other guys had. We, we have quite low turnover at Little Moons. And so all the new people, did they, did they see our vision? Did they, they just came into a madhouse, you know, <laughs> one of the people we're trying to implement SNOP whilst we didn't have the systems and the processes to necessarily facilitate that. And so it was a bit of a madhouse. And I think you then attract people who know how to build things and not just exist within things. And I think that creates a, a really exciting culture within the office because everyone was excited about this growth. And I think we had one person join and he left that day. He said, I can't cope with this. It's nuts. Um, and so he wasn't the right person for our business, but everyone is still with us here. And they built everything they're working with now, they built it and they overcame that issue um, that, that we were having. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's, 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 those are the kind of people that you want. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, there's a, almost a temptation when that happens and you're the founder to take it personally, you know, the, oh God, I've got a bad culture or, oh God, this isn't the right place for people because that happens. And ultimately, uh, you have to kind of resign yourself to the fact that actually, no, it's just not the right thing for that person at this stage of their business, um, or that, that stage of their life, rather, in our stage of the business. Um, we've gone through that at Heights over the last year, and I've shared very publicly about it. Um, you know, it's difficult, um, actually very challenging, understanding that some people are amazing for the stage of business you're at, and then you suddenly outgrow it too fast and it's just not a good fit anymore and that's a really difficult thing especially when you know in your example you just gave someone had been with you one day and quit and we had someone that did that literally a month ago um and it was uh both unbelievably irritating and funny um in in a kind of like what the fu it never happened to me before so i was like what the fuck um but you know we also had people that have been with us since the start of the business who are senior leaders that we had to let go and that was really uncomfortable and it's because we weren't growing they weren't meeting the challenge and you know, that's hard. I don't consider myself a ruthless person, but you do have to have some kind of edge there. And this is something, a skill that you have to learn if you really care about the size of the business, the pace um, and what you're trying to build. And I guess, you know, for me, listening to your journey as well, one thing that we try to be really deliberate about at Heights, which I was really resonating with you on, by the way, when you were talking about, um, you know, we don't currently have any plans for retail. Um, when you're talking about, you know, we did this, you know, we did a cardo and then that was like said, we were learning about how to go into a cardo properly. And then we did Tesco and then we did Waitrose. And, um, I think that's almost the benefit of being a self-funded business, um, is that you are, um, able to take the most sensible decisions that aren't at the cost of your mental health, your team's mental health, everyone's stress levels. There's just no one forcing you to do things that otherwise would seem quite stupid, um, just because they have a fund to return. Um, and that is the benefit. And for us, you know, at Heights, we tried to set ourselves a 10% um, net monthly growth target, which is a lot because it compounds um, very quickly. But it is also um, not so completely crazy that we're all going to get burnt out and die. And, you know, we're trying to sort of keep that consistent level on purpose. And so, you know, you have a moment like you did with TikTok, 
And it's really interesting for us because we we try very hard, again, logically, supply and demand reasons too, as much as anything. We try to make sure that the bets we're making are um, exciting and good and creative and all of these things, but maybe not so completely mental that our business will completely implode. This is a very hard balance to get right when you're trying to do great things. I couldn't agree more. And actually, I think that more founders should talk about that because that is a really painful part of your journey, having to let people go. And there's some people who are just suited for scrappy startups. Like you can't you can't grow without them. But then when structure's in place and they need to follow those processes, it's just not them. And you know, it's best for you and it's best for them for you for them to exit the business. And sometimes they don't see that. But um that's definitely one of the hardest parts of our journey like you said, having to have people exit the business. Can you ever imagine leaving the business? Me? Yeah. I don't know what I'd do. Not not, not right now, maybe in the future. Um, there's a lot of other things that I want to do. Like I, I mentioned that life is short. I definitely want more time to travel. Um, I do, you know, we've, we've got a CEO in the business now. So hopefully I feel like I can travel without my laptop. I went away um, the other week and for the first time, in 12 years without my laptop. And that was a really nice feeling. So I think it's about balance because I don't want to leave Little Moons and suddenly have all this time in my hands. I think it is definitely, I need to redress the balance in my life. And if I have someone else who is responsible for the business and I trust, then I can go away, recharge and come back. I think that's the best you can have. And what about um, selling the business? Is that something, I mean, you must've been approached, I'm sure, but is it something that you've practically thought much about? Well, we recently got Um, a minority investment from a private equity company. Um, And that happened at the end of last year. And the reason why we decided to get that funding now was because everyone's aware of us now, like the Unilevers and the General Mills of the world, they, they see our sales figures and, you know, we now need to grow really quickly. And whilst before we had the privilege of taking our time, as we just talked about, we don't have that privilege now. So we got some investment on, um, they, it's El Caston who, um, have, who have grown many branded businesses and they have that know-how. And actually the last three months that they have been with us, they have put in so many, um, They've supported us in so many ways, like such as the new factory that we're building, the knowledge and the the rigor and, you know, just the, the way the process of, of, of looking and problem solving and, and analyzing how you're going to do something has been absolutely invaluable. And I've, I don't think I could have done it without them, if I'm honest, because it's been a, a huge learning curve, like building this newer factory, um, even though I've done one before. This is a much bigger project. Um, and then, you know, putting in a CEO someone who's done this before, because before it was just Howard and I saying, mm, should we do this? Mm, I don't know, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, but I don't know if it's the right thing, but come on, let's do it. But with a CEO who's done it before, um, he's like, well, this is what we're going to do. And this is the reason why. And, you know, you discuss it with people who've done it before and it makes sense to you and it makes sense to them. Um, and it just gives you that confidence just to execute it and go, right, we're going for it. Um, and so I felt a lot more supported and less stressed about decision making, I guess. And so it's been a really great thing for us. What's your favorite flavor out of interest? Um, I can't pick my favorite flavor, but the one I'm most proud of is our um, vegan mango and passion fruit, just because it's our first vegan flavor. It was just such a brilliant, well, sorry if I can say so myself, I thought it was a brilliant product and it's our best-selling flavor now. Is it really? Wow. Interesting. Yeah, I do. I love the, I love the passion fruit one, um, the vegan one. Um, but you know what is underrated is how good your Belgian chocolate one is. That's vegan too. Is it really? Yes. 
Oh, wow. I didn't know that. It's so underrated, though. I say underrated. I haven't gone around trying to get a rating poll. But it's one of those things where you buy chocolate and you're like, chocolate is chocolate. Chocolate always tastes good. I know how chocolate is going to taste. And then you eat that and you're like, wow, that's like, you know, right at the top end of chocolate from my point of view. Thank you. And I am, it's worth saying, you know, when it comes to when it comes to ice cream, a bit of a snob. It's a good thing to be snobby about. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so um, my final question. So for our listeners that are listening now, um, if they want to follow in your footsteps and they want to build a household brand in, you know, a niche category and do something really innovative, but basically all comes down to just creating a product that people love. What is your advice to them? What is their big takeaway they should learn from Vivian Wong? Just really believe in your product and make sure it's really, really good. Um, I think there's... you know, we've been doing this for 12 years. I've had so many people spit out the product early days. I've had the most unusual description of the of the of the outside, but I've always believed in the product and I've always stood strong on product quality and we've never compromised on that. And I just think if you're to be successful, you have to have a great product. It's not just it's not just about marketing. I think you really fundamentally have to have a really strong product. Vivian Wong, co-founder of Little Moons. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and it was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcasts, Will Stolliman.